I wasn't sure if I was going to make it today. I woke up this morning. We had a men's camp out. I woke up in the tent um, in my sleeping bag, and I couldn't get it undone. And so I, I had a, a moment of panic where I couldn't quite reach the zip, and it was stuck behind me, and I thought this could be really awkward having to ask one of the other men to come and undo my sleeping bag. Uh, but uh, yeah, I made it, and so I'm, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you're here. Um, it would be kind of ironic because I, you know, being awake and not get, not being able to get out of bed is a bit of a challenge. I've uh, I don't normally have the problem of being awake at night. Uh, a few years ago, I was in Kyrgyzstan um, doing some ministry there for a week. Happened to be there the week the revolution broke out, and uh, I slept through it. And so uh, my roommate was not impressed that I was refreshed by morning. He'd sat there the whole night completely awake, but. Uh, hopefully, we're all awake now. If there are any men that fall asleep, um, just assume they were camping. And if, if they weren't, we won't tell you. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it that way. We'll just be gracious to one another. Uh, so we're in this series, and the series is called Ears to Hear. Like I said, it's a series about some of the stories that Jesus told. I think he told about 40 that we have in the Gospels. And uh, we've just taken five of them over the summer. And it's... It's interesting in this sense that as, as you go through it, every story you think, oh, that's so simple. It's, so, it's just, you know, just a few verses, such a simple little story. And then as you look at it closely, it tends to kind of jump off the page and sometimes sock you in the face. And you go, wow, wasn't expecting that. That's powerful. There, there's so much strength in what Jesus said. There's such a relevance even 2,000 years later. Uh, today we were going to finish the series by looking at Luke chapter 12, uh, the story of, of the man who builds bigger barns and then uh, he's called a fool because he's, he's going to die and then he's going to take nothing with him. And it's a great story, uh, but we decided, or I decided about a week ago, actually, no, I, I want to go to Luke 11. Uh, I was in uh, the hospital, not this past week, but the week before with Mariah. She was having her appendix out and I was uh, kind of you know, there for her and being with her. I was reading a book about prayer, and this chapter, this parable we're going to look at just jumped out uh, at me and really kind of rocked me, and I thought that maybe this is good timing. Maybe that's the place to go. And actually, for the last couple of weeks, the parables we've been looking at have been about prayer, and so is this one. So it sort of ended up being like a mini-series on prayer. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the story of the unjust judge. Uh, maybe you've, you've read that in Luke 18. And then we looked at the following parable, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, these two men that went up to the temple to pray. Just a simple little story, but wow, the power in that story is we realize that God is not impressed with what we think is impressive. And actually, the stuff that we tend to want to hide, God loves it when we're real with him. When we come to him and just say, I've got nothing. I am broken. I'm a sinner. I, I've, I've got nothing to give me even the slightest uh, kind of step up with you. And God celebrates that. He appreciates that. And so that was a, a fascinating story last week. And now we come to Luke 11, obviously earlier in the book. And it's the third of the parables that Luke has about prayer. And it comes in a, a familiar context. It starts with the Lord's Prayer. Then there's a little story. Then there's some follow-up explanation. So let's just look at it uh, together. Luke 11, it's on page 869, if you have one of the church Bibles, page 869, and uh, you'll see the chapter 11 there on the right-hand side. Let me read you the Lord's Prayer. It might sound familiar. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. If you're thinking, hang on, there's a bit more. The bit more is in Matthew, okay? So don't, don't think we've sort of, you know, tipex the Bible or anything. The kingdom come, you know, that stuff is, is in Matthew. So really simple little structure. And I don't think that what Jesus was saying here is that every time you pray, you have to say these exact words. It's not kind of a formula that should constrain us or restrict our prayers. Because even when we look at Jesus' prayers, he doesn't repeat this all the time. We don't see the, the apostles praying these exact words, but it does give us some real key insight into what we should be praying. Notice that Jesus says, when you pray, pray to the Father about the Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, or sorry, your will be done here. Uh, it's, it's like, God, I'm concerned about your reputation. I'm concerned about your will, what you want to happen. That's not a bad place to start in prayer, is it? And then after praying to the Father about the Father, he says, okay, then pray to the Father about the family. Give us. Forgive us. Those who are indebted to us. And then what's the last line there? Lead us. Notice it's us, 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 us all the way through. There's a sense that that Jesus expects his people to be praying corporately. That we're praying for one another. We're praying side by side with each other. You know, when one family is, is hurting, we're praying for them. When, when someone's going through a, a really serious operation, of course, we're going to stand together in prayer. When someone's struggling, we're going to stand together. When someone's, you know, going through a tough season, we, we want to be there. It's that sense of us, of family. And so Jesus says, pray to the Father about the Father. Pray to the Father about the family for the things we need, for the forgiveness that we need. Because we're broken people. We're sinful people. And asking God not to put us in situations where we're going to be confronted with even more temptation uh, because, you know, we're quite good at sinning as it is. We don't want to increase that at all. And so just very real kind of prayer, even though if you're like me, you've probably said it in school assemblies back in the day and it just kind of becomes, you know, sort of rhythmic. But actually, I think what Jesus is saying is this. When you pray, just pray about this stuff. Just say it. Be real. Talk to God about it. But if if we're going to get the point that's going to help us to make sense of what comes next, then we've got to pull back from the two big kind of halves of the prayer. In a sense, what Jesus is saying here is love God and love your neighbor. You love God, love your neighbor. He says that all the time. That's kind of his instruction. And here it is in prayer, love God and love your neighbor. But what we mustn't miss is that first word, Father. That's astonishing. That's the amazing part of it. That's the bit that should just blow our circuits if we really realize what Jesus is saying. When you pray, say, Father. How amazing is that? He doesn't say when you pray, do a 10-minute monologue to kind of warm God up. He says, just call him Father, Abba. Just, Just approach him, Dad. Just come into his presence. Just speak to him. That's an amazing privilege. If you're anything like me, maybe you you can look at your life and go, actually, you know what? I'm not very good at that. 
maybe instead of praying to God as father, maybe you've fallen into what I've fallen into at times, praying to God as boss. You know, the way you'd speak to an employer. And the, the difference with an employer is that when you come to an employer to ask for something, you tend to negotiate based on what you've done. Look, I've, I've done what you've said. You know, I've been faithful in this job. I followed this through. You know, that project, yeah, I, I, I did that in my spare time. I, I'm wondering about a pay rise. And, and, and you kind of negotiate. Isn't it easy to fall into that kind of a prayer? Boss. I've been really good, and I haven't done that sin that's been really, you know, a common feature of my prayers recently. So since I haven't done that, and I have been to church, I was wondering if you might think about doing such and such. That's a very different prayer, and yet we can so easily fall into it, where we negotiate with God based on our performance. Or the reverse of that, when we mess up and when we fail, we stop talking. Not worth it. He's not going to listen to me at the moment because I'm struggling. That might be true in the workplace. If, you're, if your performance is bad, if you're not hitting targets, avoiding the boss's office might be a good idea. But that's not true in the family, is it? Well, I, I've got several children and I love all of them. And there are times where their performance is great and there are times when their performance isn't. My love doesn't change. And I, I never have a child come to me and say, oh, sorry, you're not being very obedient at the moment, so I'm not listening. You see, in a family, that's not the way it works. In the workplace, it does. And Jesus does not say when you pray, you're in the workplace. He's saying when you pray, you're in family place. Maybe another thing we fall into, instead of saying father, or instead of saying boss, we say genie. Ever done that? Kind of rub the prayer lamp and hope that the genie is there to grant your wish. Come on, admit it. We've all done it, haven't we? It's where we kind of try to do the right mechanism. We try to say the special words. You know, maybe if we get the right level of adoration and confession and thanksgiving, then he'll listen to our shopping list. And, and we can kind of come to God and we can, we can, you know, try to make him feel good. You know, you are the God who created everything. And quote a Bible verse if you can think of one. And, you know, you kind of try to do the magic ritual so that then when you get to your point... He does what you ask. I've done that. A lot of Christmases growing up, I prayed that way. But if you've tried that, maybe you've kind of grown tired of that because it doesn't seem to work, does it? You haven't got the Ferrari. haven't got the swimming pool. haven't got the jet ski. All the things that made so much sense, you haven't got. Or maybe things that aren't frivolous and silly but really make sense. Like this person getting better, but they didn't. Or this situation improving, and it didn't. Or this church going in the right direction, and it didn't. And, and it's easy to become a little bit disillusioned and to say, oh, this doesn't work. The Bible says, you know, ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. Oh, that's not true. And it's because maybe we've treated God as a genie, that if we can just get the formula right, he's guaranteed to answer our prayer. But Jesus doesn't say, say, dear genie. He says, say, father. And when you say father, you're talking to one who loves you. You're talking to one who knows best. And that means that sometimes he doesn't give you the Ferrari. Does it make sense? Not necessarily, but he does know best because he's the father. And he's a good father. And I think it's important for us, before we jump into the parable, to recognize that, that the fact that God is Father is the key to this whole section. 
Now, he's only father if you're in the family. In another place, Jesus, uh, start of John's gospel, is talking about Jesus, and it says uh, that he came to his own, as in the, the Jews, and they did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who did accept Jesus as who he was and what he'd come to do, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the offer on the table for all of us from God is, hey, I want to adopt you. I want you to come into my family. I want to adopt you into the family. I want to birth you into the family. And it's an offer, but it's not forced upon us. And so that's the most important thing of anything we're going to say is this, that we're not automatically God's children because of background or family or going to church or anything like that. But it's an offer for all of us. God has made a way for us to come into his family by sending his son Jesus to take our place, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to make a way for sinful people like us to approach a holy God and call him dad. He gives us his own relationship with his father if we're just willing to accept it. If we're just willing to, to, to throw all of our life and our eternity onto him and to accept his offer of life and forgiveness, then he'll give us everything that's his. It's amazing, isn't it? And maybe the most amazing part of that is that we then, from that moment on, get to call the God who created everything, Dad. He's Father, and he loves to hear us speak to him. And so then Jesus tells a story. Let me read it to you, starting at verse 5. And it doesn't seem to continue the father theme. It switches from uh, kind of focusing on the fatherhood, if you like, and it seems to switch to sort of a, a friendship neighbor type situation. Let me, let me read it to you. Jesus said to them, verse 5, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Let's just pause there. It's a question, right? We're, a lot of us, British. And our default response would be, no, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Of course I wouldn't. I'd feel rude. But, But in that culture, someone comes to you, and they arrive in the middle of the night, this isn't midnight like I should be in bed by now, like it is for us often. This is middle of the night midnight, like you're properly asleep and it's, you know, you don't know where you are. And, and, and someone comes at that time of night, in that culture, you're, you're, you're obligated to, to give them hospitality. Problem is, you've used up your daily bread. You made it in the morning. You finished off the last little crumb with some Nutella in the evening. You said, job done. You know, it's been a good day. You go to sleep, and then you have this friend arrive. And so Jesus' question, which of you, if you have a friend arrive in the middle of the night, will go to your neighbor and knock and say, I've got a friend. I need some, specifically, three loaves of bread. They would have said, well, yeah, of course you would. Makes total sense. What else would you do? Why? Because in that culture, not only is the the home kind of responsible for the the hospitality, the community is. And so the community wouldn't bring shame on itself by not sharing their spare bread. You know, this person knows that the person next door made an extra batch because they got this new recipe and they're all excited and they've got a cupboard of bread. They're going to go to them and that person is going to respond to them. Makes sense. 
At the same time, we all know human nature. So Jesus goes on, verse 7, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's human response. We all understand that. Single room house, typical in that culture. So you get to the end of the day, it's hard to function with oil lamps and stuff. So once it goes dark, you're kind of, you know, winding down. You get all the children in and you, you, you kind of move the furniture aside and get out the big mat or whatever it is they sleep on. They all sleep together. It's a one-room house. Get the animals in, bolt the door, you know, get the big bar across the door. Don't want anyone stealing your sheep in the middle of the night and, and you know, safety first and all that stuff. So you do all of that work and you finally settle down. It's a lovely feeling, isn't it? Maybe we have a sort of equivalent with a two-year-old and a whatever you have, you know, and you kind of, oh, that was hard work tonight. And finally, it's quiet. And you put your head down on the pillow and, oh, bliss. And in light of all of that, to then be woken in the middle of the night, <clears throat> need some bread. Oh, you're kidding. Don't bother me. It's inconvenient. It's not the right time. This makes total sense, doesn't it? That The whole story is like, well, yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yes, you'd go to your neighbor, and yes, your neighbor would be a little bit annoyed whether or not they would express that. And so what does Jesus say? Next verse. Verse 8, he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. I like that. You know, yeah, Phil, you are a friend, but no. You know, that just no, that's ridiculous. Even though he will not do it because of he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, there's a word, we'll come back to that, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Impudence. I have to look it up. It's interesting, actually, the word that, that is used in the original there is the word impudence. That sounds like a rocket science statement, doesn't it? But it's important because a lot of people have taken that word and said, well, maybe it means persistence. Even in the footnote, it says, or persistence. It's not persistence. There's many better words for persistence. If this is persistence, it's the only time the word ever means persistence anywhere in ancient literature. So it's not persistence. It literally means impudence, which is shamelessness, temerity, audacity. It's a word I've heard. Uh, from my mother a few times, uh, just a, this kind of rudeness, essentially. It's like the, the kind of shameless boldness. And so what Jesus is saying is this person's not going to get up because it's his friend. He's going to get up, which means waking the children and lighting a lamp or finding the bread and undoing the door and stepping over the sheep and kicking the goat and all of the work that's involved. The whole house will be an uproar. Why? Because that person has had the audacity to ask that's what this story is about and what does it mean as far as prayer is concerned what Jesus is saying is this if that person will do that for a friend because of their audacity how much more will God do that for us or to put it a different way the friend might say don't bother me but God doesn't God says, bother me. Why? Because he's a father. I, I, I'm willing to be tested on the will I get up at 2 a.m. for anyone in this church. So, you know, don't get me wrong. But I would much rather you didn't, generally speaking. Unless it's a genuine crisis, then I'm available. You know, but 
I'll tell you who I am available to. That's my children. And they'll come to me, middle of the night. Just shake me. I know they have to shake me because I sleep through wars. So, they, you know, it takes some effort. But they just come. So-and-so's crying. Or so-and-so's wet the bed. Or so-and-so's being sick. Or so-and-so's had a bad dream. It may be them, maybe someone else, whatever. But if it's one of my six children, I get up. It's not, you know, look at me, what a martyr. It's just it's what dads do, isn't it? We sort of have this deal, Melanie and I. She gets up when they're infants and need feeding because I can't do that. And from that point on, I'm like, well, okay, I'll take the rest. I'll probably never catch up with what you've already done. So it seems okay in that sense too. But honestly, whether that arrangement was in place or not, if my two-year-old needs me at 2 a.m., I don't care how tired I am. I don't care how rude they are to ask. I'm going to help them because that's what dads do. Right? That's what a father does for a child. And to be up in the middle of the night in the hospital or in the bathroom or next to the bed, whatever, it's what dads do. And Jesus is telling this story, I think, because he's saying, call him father. Bother him. You don't have to come with gifts. You don't have to come with performance. You don't have to come with a long introduction. My children don't do that. They never come to me in the middle of the night and say, Dad, really sorry to bother you. I mean, um, you know, respect for your position and, you know, you've worked hard today and, you know, and, but here's a box of chocolates and we've got your favorites. They don't do any of that. They just shake me and they say, Dad, and, and there's a situation. And whether I'm awake or not, I get up and I hopefully deal with the right situation and then get back to bed. That's what dads do. And that's who God is to us. And so Jesus tells this story to encourage us to bother God. No great introduction, no great gifts, no performance necessary. You can be in the worst place in your life. You can have messed up and totally brought shame and all the rest of it. But God still loves it when you come into his presence and just say, Dad, I need you. Dad, there's a situation. I want to talk to you about it. It's a good story, isn't it? It's just so simple, just two verses. Maybe three verses, but wow, if we believe that, wouldn't that change some things? Maybe you've seen that image of uh, was it JFK working at his uh, uh, office, um, the Oval Office, at his you know, huge desk. And uh, you just think of all the security that there would be outside the door and in the corridor and on the, you know, the, the entrance to the building and the gate and so on, all the Marines or whoever it is that guard the president. You don't get in there unless you're very significant or you've you know, done something incredible and you know, you've sort of won seven million gold medals for the U.S. in the Olympics like they all seem to. Whatever it is, you've got to do something incredible to even ever get into that room. But there's that picture where the president is working and his little boy is under the desk playing. That's us with God, the God of the whole cosmos, the one who's in charge of everything, doesn't have guards posted to keep you and me away. We just walk in. No one's going to stop us. No angel's going to say anything. We just come right into his presence and say, Dad, I need you. And because of that, because of that impudence or that shamelessness, it's not, I, I'm hesitant to use the word rudeness because I, I think we should respect God, we should honor God, we should obviously recognize who it is we're talking to. So I'm not going to use the word rudeness, but there's a shamelessness in a two-year-old that God wants us to have as we approach him. 
There's no airs and graces. There's no performance. There's no ritual. It's just straight in. Because, why? Because I know I'm safe. I know I'm allowed. I know this is where I belong. And that's what Jesus wants us to feel if we're in his family. And so in light of that, the passage goes on. And he says, verse uh, 8, I tell you, ask. It will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give to you? You see, in light of of the, the, the fact that God is Father, in light of the story that says, you know, audacity, boldness, shamelessness, just go for it. In light of that, therefore, ask and seek and knock and, and, and you come to him. And it's not that you have to have that persistence. Now, persistence is in the passage. It's not that we have to have that persistence because we haven't quite got the mechanism right. It's not, dear genie. We haven't rubbed the lamp in the right way. No, it's not anything to do with that. It's everything to do with a family relationship. And so children, what do they do in their shamelessness? They keep going to their parents. They'll just keep going. Why? It's part, it's sometimes annoying, but part of it is the, it's just that we're in a relationship. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to keep coming to him. Just boldly keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, trusting like a child does that God knows what he's doing. And he may answer your prayer with a yes, or he may answer your prayer with a, I've got something better that you don't understand right now. That's the prerogative of a dad. Don't have to explain all my reasons to you, but I have your best interests at heart. I'm a little bit thrown by this because for the last two days, I've had a son asking me for a serpent. And so that kind of turns the whole thing on its head. Which of you, if your son asks for a serpent, will say no. Well, this dad says no because I don't want a pet snake in the house. But, but Jesus, what he's saying here, if, he, if a son asks for a fish, dad, I'm hungry. <laughs> this will be funny. Have this. No dad does that. No normal dad. I mean, there's some really bizarre dads out there that do some horrific things. But, but Jesus is talking in normal terms. And you know, you know, your child asks for food. You want to give them food. Your child asks for an egg. You don't give them something that's going to sting them. You don't give them something silly. You don't give them something dangerous. You give them something good. And so Jesus, at the end of the passage, says, okay, so you kind of get that, right, guys? And he's talking to his disciples here. He's not talking to the crowds or anything. Talking to his disciples, he says, okay, if you, though you are evil. It's interesting. He doesn't refer to the enemies as evil. He's talking to people that have been with him, who are his followers, the kind of inner circle. He says, you're evil. Something to ponder, isn't it? Though you're evil, you know how to give your children good gifts. It's kind of inbuilt. You do it. How much more will your heavenly Father, who obviously is not evil, who has not got an evil uh, kind of streak in him, hasn't got an evil moment in him, he's completely pure, completely perfect, and in this context, completely loving, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you? In Matthew, it says, give good gifts. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you know how to give good gifts, how much more 
Does he know how to give good gifts? But have you noticed Luke says something different here? Same kind of teaching. I'm sure Jesus may have taught it on more than one occasion. Luke's record here says this, verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Huh? What's that got to do with anything? Why would he suddenly introduce that at this point? I wonder if for some of us that feels like a bit of a letdown. We're thinking good gifts, God-sized good gifts. And then he says, the Holy Spirit. It seems from the way it's set up and the way the passage flows, it's clearly kind of an end emphasis point. It's, it's like a climactic moment here. This is not something that's supposed to make us go, oh, that's a shame. It's something that's supposed to make us go, wow. God would give his spirit to us. I don't know what your background is uh, church-wise. Some of you have grown up in churches where the spirit is very much focused on. Others grown up in churches where the spirit is kind of like a code word that's never used. Uh, maybe you're from outside the church and you've got no idea what's going on right now. Here's the thing. What I want to encourage us to do as a, as a group of people, as a church here at Trinity, is dive into the Bible and see what the Bible says about the spirit. If you're currently in a reading plan, just stick with your plan, but have your antennas up to see what it says about the spirit. If you're not reading, this would be a good excuse to start. Maybe go through the New Testament first and say, okay, in the next couple of months, I'm just going to go through the New Testament and look for every reference to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, spiritual, anything with the word Spirit in it. I'm going to try to make sense of that. I want to understand that. Because according to this passage, according to Jesus, that is the greatest gift that the Father, who is the greatest giver, wants to give us out of his the greatest love. So obviously it matters. The Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a kind of a mind-bending thing, and we tend to shy away from it. But here at Trinity, we want to say, you know what? It's the glorious love of the Trinity that brings transformation. And you cannot understand the glorious love of the Trinity without recognizing the role of the Spirit in that. He is absolutely critical to the Christian life. There is no Christian life without the Spirit. The Spirit is the Christian life in many ways for us. Now, what does that mean? If we were to uh, keep going, like I said, do a New Testament read-through, let me just give you a little taste of some of the stuff you'll find. If you got into John, for example, you get the upper room discourse where Jesus talks for three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, with his disciples, and they're all distressed because he's leaving, and he says to them, it's okay, don't be distressed because my going means that another helper can come, and he talks about the Spirit and what a blessing it is for the Spirit to come to the followers of Jesus. And the Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not all about himself and focused on self. No, he glorifies Jesus. He points the followers of Jesus to Jesus. The Spirit's role is very much to make us Jesus lovers. You come into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts begins, the great kind of launch moment in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost, where, where Jesus has said to his followers, don't go charging out there all excited about the resurrection and try and tell the world in your own power. No, if you're going to communicate the reality of Jesus to this world, you need power, and the power is coming when the Spirit comes upon you. And he's going to empower you to speak about Jesus. 
And all the way through the book of Acts, we see reference to the Spirit. Almost every chapter, reference to the Spirit of God at work amongst his people. But the work of the Spirit is not some kind of weird sort of, you know, um, self-focused, showy thing. You see a lot of that in certain circles. It's not helpful because the Spirit himself will always be focused on communication and our communication with each other and our communication with God. He's the one that's going to unite us to give us that sense of relationship. So when you come into the book of Romans, for example, you come to Romans 5, and there's this verse, 5 verse 5. It says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. There's the communication. You want to know God loves you. Be thankful for the Spirit of God pouring out that awareness, that sense of God's love into our hearts. That's a key verse in Romans. The love of God is poured out into us by the Spirit. You come into chapter 8, which is just a chapter all about the Spirit. I think it's about verse 16, where, where the Spirit assures us that we're his children. And so all the doubts, all the kind of, oh, I'm not sure, or my performance, or, you know, I'm kind of messed up. The Spirit is wanting to work and reassure you. God loves you. You're his. He's still your father. He still, he wants you to come and call him father. The Spirit's work in us is an incredible blessing. Later on in the chapter, 8 verse, was it, 26, it goes the other way. It says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. There are times where we don't even know what to pray. Have you been there yet? Where you just kind of go, oh, I can't even find words for what I'm feeling. And the Spirit takes those words and those groans and he intercedes for us according to the will of God. In our house, we have a lot of cakes. I think it's a birthday thing. Lots of people, lots of birthdays, therefore lots of cakes. If you ever watch somebody icing a cake or if you're American frosting a cake, you have that kind of, what's it, kind of the bag thing. You can tell I'm an expert, right? I'm just good at eating them. But you get the bag and you put the icing or the frosting into that bag. And and then an expert, which isn't me, will kind of squeeze that bag. And what comes out the other end is the same stuff that went in. But with that little tip, with the little funny, you know, pattern on it, they're able to make flowers and shapes. And it's just an incredibly beautiful thing, end result, that began with the dolloping of some unformed sugar into the other end. That's kind of what the Spirit does for our prayers. Sometimes all we can do is just dollop, just bleh. Here's, I don't even know what to make of this. Here are my thoughts. Here are my desires. Here's my confusion. And we just kind of throw that in God's direction, and the Spirit brings that to God's attention like a perfectly formed thought, like a beautifully decorated cake. This is exactly what's going on in this person's heart, Father. Isn't that great? He prays for us. So the love of God is poured into our hearts and our prayers are are helped and translated and interpreted to the Father for us. You keep going, you get into 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, for example, it talks about the Spirit and his role searching the depths of the heart and the communication that goes on. For example, in verse 9, it says that in reference to what's to come in the future, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And you read that and you go, Who can know? But then you read the next verse. But it's been revealed to us. The Spirit in Jesus has revealed to us all that God has for us. So in the darkest moments, in the most 
unexplainable, confusing, dark, depressing moments, the Spirit of God is at work telling us and reminding us and and poking us in the right direction to recognize that, that we've got a wonderful future. Even if this season is the toughest we'll ever go through, that is going to be amazing. And the Spirit is at work in that. You keep going later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12, 13, 14. It talks about the Spirit's role in the community of believers, giving gifts according to his design so that we can communicate with one another and build up the body of Christ so that some can reach out and communicate effectively and people get saved and others get encouraged and helped and taught and, 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 and you know, shepherded. The Spirit's at work amongst us to make us what he, God wants us to be. You come into 2 Corinthians and it talks about the the new covenant, this wonderful plan that God is working out. And again, in chapter 5, he's talking about how there are times where we just groan and want to be done with this earthly life. But we've been given the spirit as a guarantee of the home that is to come. And boy, a home compared to a tent is so much better. And that's what we're looking for because the spirit tells us, yes, he's preparing a home for you. There's hope. You come into Galatians after Second Corinthians. You come into Galatians, and in Galatians it talks about the great plan of God that we should receive the promised Holy Spirit, chapter 3, verse 14. Like that's the goal of the plan. And then chapter 5, talking about living the Christian life and keeping in step with the Spirit. He's, he's involved intimately with us day by day, moment by moment, bringing the transformation in us that we so desperately need. Come to Ephesians, and the Spirit's there too. It's talking about the Spirit and how he is at work within us, the power of God within us and, and the love of God within us, filling us. And then you get to chapter 5, and it talks about uh, don't be controlled by wine but be filled with the spirit we go to colossians and it uses the same phrase to talk about being filled with the word of god and i could keep going but my point is that the new testament in every single book is going to help us to understand just what an incredible gift the holy spirit is for us and so as you read your bible i dare you to do this i dare you to bother god And I dare you to pray without a great buildup and without trying to impress him and without all the kind of, you know, rubbing the lamp magical stuff. Just come into his presence shamelessly and say, God, I need you. God, I need you to give me whatever that means, that more filling of the spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the spirit. The moment you become a believer, you receive the spirit. But we need to be filled with the spirit. And actually, that's the greatest thing that God could ever give us. And I just think, how exciting is that? And yet, how little do I pray for that? How often do I kind of think that I can handle life? Just a little tweak here and a little help there, a little bit of resourcing. And actually, what God wants is for me to just throw myself on him and say, Oh, God, I need you. And if you want to pray in line with the will of God, then I dare you to pray, God, Give me a closer relationship with you. Because that's what this is all about. Give me a closer relationship with you. And I tell you what, it's even better. Give us a closer relationship with you. What I find is that when I try to to live for Jesus solo, I very quickly get distracted back into the normal stuff of life. 
Some of the best times I've ever experienced is when I've been shoulder to shoulder with other Christians and together we've been saying, oh God, we need you. So here in in Trinity, think about life group as a, a framework, a stage to be able to sit shoulder to shoulder with other brothers or sisters or both and together say, God, we need you. We've got free to connect, this kind of freedom within our schedule to get together with one another and with neighbors and family and so on. Let's use that to to pray together and to stimulate in each other an appreciation and a desire for a closer relationship with God. I can't even begin to imagine what these next months, this next year has in store for us if we're prepared to shamelessly come to him at any time and we don't need to shake him awake because he never sleeps. That's a positive in his case. And he he never sleeps and he's always attentive and he's always ready to hear us and he always is ready to know our heart as the spirit communicates it to him and we can just come to him shamelessly and say, Dad, I need a closer relationship with you. I need you. I need your spirit. I need help loving Jesus. And let's do that, and let's do that together. Let's be a church that says, Lord, we need you. Jesus said, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him? He's not a genie. He's not a boss. He's a father. And he loves to hear that kind of prayer.